Section 61 of Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones. Final Report of the Advisory Committee on Human Radiation Experiments, Case Studies, Chapter 12, Part 3. Radiation Exposure Compensation Act. The Begay decision concluded that the plight of the uranium miners cries for redress. Because of the doctrine of sovereign immunity, however, the court declared that it could not provide the appropriate remedy. By 1990, 410 lung cancer deaths had occurred among the 4,100 miners in the Colorado Plateau Study Group. About 75 lung cancer deaths would normally have been expected in a group of miners such as this. In the same year, Congress responded with legislation, the Radiation Exposure Compensation Act, RECA, which provided $100,000 compensation for minors with lung cancer or non-malignant respiratory disease subject to certain conditions. In the case of lung cancer, the Act requires that the claimant demonstrate an occupational exposure to radon daughters from 200 WLM, working level months, to 500 WLM, depending upon his age and smoking history, the higher figure applying to smokers and older minors. In the case of non-malignant respiratory disease, the Act also requires documentation of disease by a panel of radiologists certified in assessing X-ray evidence of lung disease. In both cases, records of occupational histories and civil records for next-of-kin claimants, such as marriage certificates, are also required. Records that are often non-existent or difficult to obtain, particularly for Navajo miners. The most recent and authoritative analysis of risks of lung cancer from radon in uranium mining comes from a 1994 NIH publication that reanalyzed all 11 of the major occupational radon studies worldwide. This analysis considerably extends that undertaken by the National Academy of Sciences BEIR-4 Committee, which was available in 1986 prior to the enactment of RECA. This report used similar methods of analysis, but more recent and more detailed data on a larger set of studies. The most important conclusions of this report are that the risk rises approximately linearly with level of exposure with an average slope that is similar to that estimated by earlier committees, including BEIR-4. 1. That the risk per WLM varies strongly by age, latency, mining cohort, and especially by dose rate or duration, the latter being a relatively recent observation, but one that is now widely accepted. 2. That there is little evidence that the proportional increase in lung cancer risks is substantially different for smokers and non-smokers. As a consequence, the probability that a particular lung cancer 
was caused or contributed to by radon is not materially altered by smoking history. 3. That on average more than half of the lung cancers among white miners in the Colorado Plateau cohort and the Navajo New Mexico cohort were caused by radon exposures and four that there were substantial uncertainties in the actual doses received by miners in different mines thus the two hundred wlm figure that is used in reca as the criterion for awarding compensation is not unreasonable as a balance of probabilities for the miners as an entire group but one is a much higher risk threshold than is required for either the downwinders of the Nevada test site or the atomic veterans covered in the same act, and two, ignores substantial variation in age, latency, and other factors, and substantial uncertainties in dose estimates for individuals within the group of all miners, so that many miners whose cancers are likely to have been caused by radon would not have attained this criterion. Furthermore, the distinction between smokers and non-smokers established in the act is not well supported by currently available scientific evidence and tends to deny compensation to many miners, most of whom are smokers, but suffered substantial increases in risk due to the synergistic effect of the two carcinogens. Clearly, some miners have a stronger case for compensation than others, and RECA makes an attempt to make such distinctions. In principle, it would be possible to construct a formula for determining the probability of causation that would better reflect the current state of scientific knowledge and a threshold on this scale of probabilities that would treat the miners more equitably vis-a-vis -vis the other groups covered by the Act. However, the case of the uranium miners presents insurmountable obstacles in this regard, including the loss of records pertaining to occupational histories and exposures and variations in cultural practices that have made record-keeping burdens on claimants especially onerous. When the difficulty of meeting such bureaucratic requirements is coupled with the strong link between lung cancer and uranium mining, the scheme unjustly places too great a burden on the individual. The committee is strongly persuaded to propose an adjustment in the criteria so that the evidence of a minimum duration of employment underground would be sufficient to qualify for compensation. Any compensation scheme is necessarily imperfect, but given the strength of causal connection and the severity of the energy, the time spent in the mines is a rational and equitable basis for determining exposure levels. Conclusions about the uranium miners The advisory committee concludes that an insufficient effort was made by the federal government to mitigate the hazard to uranium miners through early ventilation of the mines, and that as a result, miners died. The committee further concludes that there were no credible barriers to federal action. While national security clearly provided the context for uranium mining, our review of available records reveals no evidence that national security or related economic considerations 
were relied on by officials as a basis for not taking action to ventilate the mines. Since most of the mines were not ventilated, the federal government should at least have warned the miners of the risk of lung cancer they faced by working underground. We recognize that the miners had limited employment options and might have felt compelled to continue working in the mines, but the information should have been available to them. Had they been better informed, they could have sought help in publicizing the fact that working conditions in the mines were extremely hazardous, which might have resulted in some mines being ventilated earlier than they were. The court in the Begay decision did not exaggerate when it called the abuse of these miners, quote, a tragedy of the nuclear age, close quote. The committee believes that after 1951, when William Bale and John Harley's findings on radon daughters established that miners were getting a much larger dose to the lungs than previously suspected, the mine owners, the state governments, and the federal government each had a responsibility to take action leading to ventilation of all mines. There are basic ethical principles to not inflict harm and to promote welfare of others, as described in Chapter 4, under which all the relevant parties ought to have acted to prevent harm to the miners. The advisory committee has found no plausible justification for the failure of the federal government, which is the focus of our inquiry, to adhere to these principles. It is clear that officials of the federal government were convinced by the early 1950s that radon and radon daughter concentrations in the mines were high enough to cause lung cancer. The federal government's obligation flows from this knowledge and its causal link to the mining activity. Without the federal government to buy uranium, there would have been no uranium mining industry. Since the miners were put at risk by the federal government, a minimal moral requirement would be that the government ensure that the risk was reduced to an acceptable level. Because the federal government did not take the necessary action, the product it purchased was at the price of hundreds of deaths. The historical record is tangled and incomplete, but legal responsibility for the health and safety of the miners appears to have rested largely, but not exclusively, with the states. At the same time, the resources to implement remedial measures existed mainly within the federal government. The Atomic Energy Commission, which was the contracting agency of the federal government in its role as sole purchaser of uranium, interpreted the Atomic Energy Act as not providing it with authority over health and safety in the mines. It is not clear to the committee why the AEC as in the case of beryllium, could not have made ventilation a requirement of any contract to mine uranium, or, in any event, why the AEC could not have sought clarification of its authority from Congress. The Labor Department appears to have had authority under the 1936 Walsh-Healy Act to ensure safe working conditions in the mines, but for reasons that are again unclear to the committee, it was not until 1967 that the Department of Labor applied the act. According to the Big A decision, the United States did not recruit miners to work in the mines, 
nor did it cause the miners to be exposed to hazard or withhold treatment from any individual. None of these considerations, however, detracts from what was for the advisory committee an overarching determinative consideration. Without the federal government's initiative and its role as a sole purchaser, there would not have been an American uranium industry. Because the government played a pivotal role in putting the miners in harm's way, it follows that the government had a moral obligation to ensure that the harm be controlled, at least to a level of risk which is not excessive of those risks normally associated with underground mining, an argument that government used to act in the case of beryllium. The uranium mines were not ventilated, however, adding particular significance to the second moral issue raised by this case. Why were the miners not warned about the risk to which they were being exposed, particularly as the likely magnitude of the hazard became clear? Although this question can be properly put to all the relevant parties, including the mine owners, the state governments, and the various federal agencies, most attention has focused on the public health service. Investigators of the PHS were the only federal officials in direct contact with miners as they recruited and then followed the miners in the course of their epidemiological studies. Also, it was in the course of these studies that important evidence about the severity of the risk was accumulated. When the data collected by the PHS indicated the miners were working in an environment where the threat of lung cancer was significant, which was clearly the case after the Bale-Harley findings, and when the PHS observed in the early 1950s that the states and owners were not ventilating the mines to mitigate the hazard, the PHS was obligated to warn the miners about the implications of its research. This research appears to have been conducted, however, under oral understandings with the mine owners that the PHS researchers would not directly warn the miners of the level of hazard. The question arises, of course, of whether the PHS should have entered into an agreement to study the miners conditioned on not warning them of the hazard to which they were being exposed. The argument for accepting this condition is that it was the only way the PHS researchers could gain entry to the mines, and that ultimately the study results would be available and likely save some lives. But the acceptance of the condition precluded the PHS from dealing in a straightforward manner with the people they were proposing to study, and from providing a warning that had the potential, in this case, for saving at least some lives. The committee is divided on this issue. Some members concluded that the condition was morally objectionable, and should have been rejected, even if this meant that the research could not go forward or could go forward only in a limited way. Others argued that a morally acceptable course would have been to accept the condition and, as the results emerged, warn the miners anyway, because in this case the duty of promise-keeping was justifiably overridden by the duty to prevent harm. The PHS's decision to abide by the agreement not to warn the miners is particularly troubling in light of a regulation, as noted by the court in the Begay decision, enforced from 1951 to 1978, 
that govern the disclosure of information obtained and conclusion reached for PHS surveys, research projects, and investigation. The regulation said, in part, that information obtained by the service under an assurance of confidentiality may be disclosed whenever the Surgeon General specifically determines disclosure to be necessary to prevent an epidemic or other grave danger to the public health. Certainly, at some point, the potential and eventually realized lung cancer epidemic qualified under this regulation. The PHS's 1952 interim report is clear that certain acute conditions are present in industry which, if not rectified, may seriously affect the health of the worker. So while the PHS had legal as well as moral standing to breach its confidentiality agreement, it did not do so although it appears to have made efforts to communicate its findings, their implications and abatement recommendations to the health authorities, the AEC mine operators and owners and state agency. The agreement between the PHS and the mine owners no doubt also affected what PHS investigators were willing to tell the miners about the purpose of their investigations at the time the miners were recruited to participate. The PHS told the miners a little more than that they were studying miners' health. In fact, they were studying, one, the relationship between exposure to radon and other conditions in the mines and miners' health, and two, engineering methods, specifically ventilation techniques, for controlling radiation hazards. Had miners been told the true purpose of the study then, even in advance of any warnings connected with the progress of the research, it is possible the miners could have used this information to advocate for their interests. Even if the miners were not well positioned to seek employment elsewhere, or to advocate for improved working conditions, the principle of respect for the self-determination of others would have required a more straightforward disclosure. Current guidelines for the ethics of epidemiological research as well as current practices, would not counsel the original bargain with the mine owners. The minimal disclosure made to workers about the purpose of the research or the failure to warn the workers as the hazard became clear. For example, the current Council for International Organizations of Medical Sciences, CIOMS, guidelines explain, quote, Part of the benefit that communities, groups, and individuals may reasonably expect from participating in studies is that they will be told of findings that pertain to their health. Close quote. The CIOMS guidelines also specify a duty not to withhold, misrepresent, or manipulate data. Today, it is widely recognized among epidemiologic researchers that they have an obligation to report findings indicating potential or actual harm, along with the uncertainties of those findings, to the people being studied and to the public at large. Although the committee believes that the federal government should have acted to ensure that the mines were ventilated and that the PHS should have informed the miners about the severity of the risk it was investigating, the committee did not have enough information to assess the moral responsibility of the individual AEC and PHS employees and officials 
for these failures. Some effort was made by some investigators to get the states and mine owners to ventilate the mines, and some warnings may have been given to individual miners. But the ventilation effort was inadequate, and the warnings ineffectual. We lack the information to evaluate whether officials such as Duncan Holliday, Henry Doyle, and Merrill Eisenbud should have done more than they did to protect the miners, granting that their superiors had ultimate responsibility for decisions not to press for ventilations and warnings. Whistleblowing to avert serious harm is an important moral responsibility, but there are personal prudential considerations unknown to us that must be weighed before judging whether these people failed in their duty. While federal and state agencies may debate internally and with one another the limits of their authority, from the advantage of those exposed to risk by the government, the government should be reasonably expected to do what is needed to sort out responsibility and to ensure that action is taken to address risk. This did not happen. Perhaps the most remarkable aspect of the uranium miners' tragedy is that, notwithstanding the national security context, so much of it took place in the open. So many federal and state agencies were participants, often with some formal degree of responsibility or authority, in an unfolding disaster that appears to have been preventable from the outset. End of section 61, Case Studies, Chapter 12, Part 3